0: Danielle Griffiths is a research fellow in interdisciplinary bioethics and law within the Institute for Science, Ethics and Innovation at the University of Manchester. And Alex Malek is a lecturer in medical law at the University of Manchester. And they're both here today to deliver a paper entitled Shame and Cosmetic Surgery, Legitimizing Harmful Medical Practice. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Thank you, Barry and Luna, for inviting us for this, this wonderful occasion. Um, and we're going to talk about I think everybody's talking about scales completely the other end of the scale to the previous paper. So we're going to talk about purely cosmetic uh, surgery, and we realise that the boundaries are quite hazy. So we know um, there are two subfields within plastic surgery: reconstructive surgery, which is uh, which is work that seeks to repair catastrophic, congenital, or cancer damage deformities and is seen as restorative of a somehow damaged appearance. Whereas cosmetic surgery, what we want to concentrate on is entirely elective work that's seen purely as an enhancement of appearance. And we're fully aware of the kind of uh, blurring boundaries between therapeutic and non-therapeutic, but we really want to concentrate on surgery where no one would claim it would be a therapeutic basis. So, cosmetic surgery is a form of proper medical treatment. And surgeons perform surgery on the basis that they are medical professionals operating within medical guidelines, and thus they have no fear of being subject to the criminal law in a way that, say, Alex, what if I gave us some tools and asked to reshape my nose? Um, And although increasingly popular, cosmetic surgery occupies what we are going to suggest quite a shameful place within medicine. Um, current trends and demands for certain kinds of cosmetic surgery pose particular risks so for example female genital or no cosmetic surgery has risen in popularity in recent years particularly and worryingly with younger women um, and that's despite the harms and risks and permanent damage it can give rise to Um, the type this type of surgery give rise to concern that women whose bodies don't conform to a particular ideal, um, often perpetuated by the cultural industry and things like pornography, these women then feel compelled to um, feel shame about their inadequacies and seek surgical solutions. And alongside this, we've been looking at how cultural representations of cosmetic surgery are increasingly uh, showing surgery gone wrong, they're actually quite negative about cosmetic surgery. So in the context of such a shameful position, we want to explore how, actually, how does cosmetic surgery legitimate itself, and we want to s- explore this through shame operating as a device that directly and indirectly drives and legitimates such an ethically suspect branch of medicine by displacing the negatives of this surgery onto certain patient psyches. And we'll suggest that this works in two ways, so individualized bodily shame, um, and also shame projected onto what has been described as surgical others who are delegitimized through going too far or not making the right decisions in order to legitimate what is deemed to be proper response surgery, yet we will say is isn't harmful surgery and both processes um, rely on being included within this term, proper medical treatment, in order to medicalize and sanction some of its practices. So we want to finish by suggesting such surgery should not be subject to medical exception or uh, being included in proper medical treatment. And that may help dele- delegitimize some of the harmful practices. So um, the undergoing Uh, surgery as a beauty enhancing treatment has increasingly become a lifestyle choice for increasing numbers of people. According to the British uh, Association of Static Plastic Surgeons, there were 50,122 cosmetic uh, cosmetic procedures performed in 2013, Um, and that was a rise of 17% from 2012. And the cosmetic surgery industry was worth 750 million in the UK in 2005, 2.3 billion in 2010, and that's forecast to reach 3.6 billion by 2015. And in the UK, there's been a recent review by Sir Bruce Keogh um, of the cosmetic surgery industry. And he suggested, as many other empirical studies have suggested, that this drive for cosmetic enhancement is driven by a number of socio-economic and te- technological factors, which has led to its normalisation of these potentially harmful cosmetic interventions. So um, I, more and more people admit to having cosmetic surgery, whereas it was once quite hidden. Um, social media, uh, celebrity endorsement and advertising will be central to this sort of normalisation. And it's mainly still women, while men are increasingly uh, undergoing cosmetic procedures, It's still mainly is women, which is something Alex is going to pick up in this moment. So where is the harm, and where does it fit within medicine, or what's defined as proper medical treatment? So this paper is partially based on um, a chapter we have in this book, which Alex did with one of our colleagues, Sarah Bavard, which is very much about how medical treatment, certain medical treatments become legitimate. Cosmetic surgery falls, as I've suggested, within what would be defined as acceptable medical practice. So as a matter of public policy, the criminal law in the UK um, prohibits consensual harmful Activities, unless they can be justified because they are medically necessary, or carried out in pursuit of legitimate sporting activity. Where surgery is concerned, provided it's in the best interests of the patient and is carried out by a qualified healthcare professional, there's no question that it falls within the medical exception to the criminal law and is thus lawful. So this is where cosmetic surgery lies. It may not be, in many cases, medically necessary, but it's justified because it's carried out by a medical professional. But it's a very unusual form of medical treatment. So firstly, uh, such cosmetic surgery is very often performed on healthy bodies for no other reason than improving appearance. It's big business, as I suggested. It's driven by profit and advertising. It mainly takes place in the private sector and in response to an individual's request request and ability to pay for cosmetic enhancement rather than uh, usual medical treatment, which is demanded only when consistent with medical indications and professional judgment. And finally, much, though not all uh, we admit, cosmetic surgery can be described as harmful. And while much surgery can be described as risky and result in harm, if it's for medical benefit and weighed against the risks of not performing it, then such harm is often justified. And where there's less medical benefit, such risks are less justified. So uh, yeah, that's just an example of the kind of consumer nature of cosmetic surgery and how it's being sold. Um, so what exactly are the harms? So firstly, there's the risk of what Jean McHale has described as normalising perfection as well as pathologicising imperfection. So cosmetic surgery reinforces and heightens intense concern with body image and culturally prescribes standards of beauty. It contributes to a youth culture that sustains ageing and the elderly and upholds a very culturally specific version of beauty. It promotes inequality, perhaps, between those who have the resources to cosmetically enhance themselves and those that don't. And so Jean McHale has asked, will the cosmetically unenhanced effectively one day become an unemployable underclass? The physical risks of cosmetic surgery have most starkly and recently been illuminated by the recent PIP breast implant scandal. Um, when it was found that the French company, the French implant company, were found to have used (coughs) industrial-grade silicon in their products. Um, And data on harm and cosmetic procedures is scarce, but some are available from medical negligence claims, which we've just seen in the last paper. So the (coughs) Medical Defence Union um, have shown that growing numbers of patients are seeing cosmetic surgeons over mistakes during operations designed to Improves their appearance and now while this we, you know, we know this is for a number of factors not just because of bad practice but like we saw from the previous paper because of patient expectations and so on um, but we also would say it's also um, due to some risky and harmful practices um, of some surgeons so um, 45% of cases are successful medical negligence cases in cosmetic surgery Uh, claims are successful compared to 30% of medical negligence claims in general. So this success rate indicates multiple things but also perhaps harms underlying these claims are quite serious and clear. Um, There are of course other well-known risks associated with private cosmetic surgery including unregistered or poorly qualified surgeons, inadequate consent procedures as well as the normal risks associated with invasive surgery. And in terms of regulation in the UK, things are not looking too hopeful, even after the Keogh report. So we are going to have, um, uh, the Royal College are going to create a register of certified surgeons who are uh, appropriately qualified to provide particular procedures. But this isn't really a radical reform and many have described, many of Keogh's uh, recommendations as being quite a piecemeal approach. That doesn't really properly address the harms endemic to cosmetic surgery. So, for many, this means that um, cosmetic surgery should be removed from what's termed proper medical treatment. The medical profession might be viewed as having a distinct morality directed towards the pursuit of health. And it's very difficult to pin down, we know, a concept of what health means. It rem- remains quite elusive. But we do know that a significant moral value is placed upon the, ma- the practice of medicine because of its importance of saving lives and promoting health. And that justifies the special status afforded by the medical exception to the medical profession. And many argue that cosmetic surgery falls out of this. So Miller uh, et al have argued invasive surgical procedures performed on healthy bodies for the sake of improving appearance lie far outside the core domain of medicine as a profession, which should be dedicated to saving our lives, healing, and promoting health. So in this context, then, how does cosmetic surgery legitimate, legitimate itself and prove so popular as it is, when it's so far distant from the traditional aims of medicine and it's so um, visibly harmful? So here we are gonna, Alex is going to um, describe how we want to suggest shame is operating on uh, two levels and order to justify such harms.
1: So uh, yes, as Danielle said, we, we, we think that shame operates on two levels. So first of all, in, in respect to the individual who feels shamed. And then there's the uh, sort of um, shaming of others. So others who perhaps go too far, um, or looking at others who perhaps we think, they could really do the makeover. Um, and then the dimension also with, with the way the medical profession um, p- partly out of necessity has to you know have a certain amount of shaming that Catherine's talked about. But also we're more concerned with um, the kind of commercial nature of the cosmetic surgery in inju- industry, where shaming is a sort of marketing strategy to sell surgery often to, to vulnerable women. Um, so, The early feminist position was that women who have cosmetic surgery are victims of a patriarchal culture and a beauty industry that pressurises them into making themselves more sexually desirable. And so we see clear sexual objectification. But then subsequently, this view is challenged by other feminists who emphasise questions of choice, autonomy and self-determination. And most famous in this respect is Kathy Davis, who stresses that women can be active agents, carefully negotiating and controlling their surgeries, rather than being mere puppets? But this account has been critiqued for overemphasising women's agency, and we agree that that, that is indeed a truthful a, a criticism. Bordeaux, for example, states that, that Cathy Davis presents the self as an authentic and personal reference point, untouched by external values and demands or relations with others. And so um, we think the third position um, is is much more um, realistic and so this has evolved so that um, the idea that the the motivation for cosmetic (coughs) surgery is neither a fully internal or external process but rather an intersubjective process that takes place in a consumerist environment. Placing aesthetic, non therapeutic surgery in a consumer context shifts the focus away from the disembodied invi- individual um, that has dominated much previous research and allows us to take into account agency and choice within a constrained, uh, constrained cultural context. And in this position, cosmetic surgery is approached as a purchase characterized by the rhetorics of fashion, consumption, and self presentation. And while such a view recognises that women are making active and reflexive choices, it also recognises that such choice operates in a structural context where gender determines action. So women's choices are constrained. And for example, a recent um, European study of attitudes to cosmetic surgery supports this, this view, showing that sexist attitudes were associated with endorsement of cosmetic surgery for one's partner. Um, And these results indicate that attitudes to cosmetic surgery for oneself and one's partner are shaped by gender ideological belief systems in patriarchal societies. But we're talking about lots of different women, and it's it's an aged, class, and race issue. And so women are differently placed in relation to the normalisation. For example, some research has shown that black women are far less likely to undergo cosmetic surgery for for things like breast augmentation because bigger breasts in some African (coughs) cultures are linked to um, hypersexuality. And in relation to social class, as Jacqueline Sanchez Taylor has noted, we're not all the same kind of makeover citizens, nor do we all experience the same pressure to conform to the same ideals. Um, And while some women are differently placed in relation to having to conform to such standards, none, we argue, are untouched. And in the context of this pressure and normalized and homogenized versions of femininity, um, Dolezal has shown how body shame is central to women's embodiment, and also how such body shame is a key factor in women's decision to undergo cosmetic surgery. So we see that dissatisfaction and shame about one's physical inadequacy leads women and girls to think that um, cosmetic surgery is necessary in the ongoing body project. And Rosalind Gill and others in a forthcoming book looked at this as well, um, in terms of the aesthetic labor that women have to undergo, where we have to become entrepreneurs in our own self-branding exercises. This view is supported by Northorpe as well, who carried out a study of 30 women, most of whom had just had cosmetic surgery or were just about to undergo it. For these women, the idea that they'd been influenced by celebrity culture was insulting and too simplistic, but they suggested that the media and culture had played an important role in educating them about what was possible in terms of self-improvement. And the dominant theme that emerged was that they felt that they were deficient in some way and did not live up to the physical ideal. And according to Northall, shame has a restitutive agenda. Those who experienced it sought to correct their shameful attributes in an attempt to restore self-love and therefore social acceptability. Narcissism, this study found, is the medium through which shame is mended. And Eve Sedgwick has also done some work on, on, on this, thinking about the shaming beauty judgments, where judgmental projections lead to moments of shame, which embed in the psyche. And we see that cultural forces, the media and the medical profession, um, stepping into those domains are key. And when they work together, powerful, a powerful message provoking body shame can result. And we see this in the populi- popularity makeover shows, in which cosmetic surgery is portrayed as the solution to the shame position of the subjects. <coughs> the shame is intensified by the negative commentary and public shaming sometimes before the cosmetic surgery and then the makeover leading to the big reveal. And the more recent kind of "Love Your Body" campaigns um, put out by companies like Dove which are very sort of positive in some respects by showing, you know, larger women and all sorts of different women rather than, you know, the stereotypically um, very, very slender model. And really positive in some respects, but they contain mixed messages because it it forces women to be um, increasingly, you know, scrutinise themselves and take part in more and more surveillance in the quest for perfection. So not only do we have to have hairless and, and nice smelling armpits, but they've also got to be wonderfully moisturised, and, and so on. So, um, so that's the way that shame sort of um, embeds in the psyche to have this, this this powerful effect on women. But also, it doesn't just operate on the individual level. We do we see othering. So, shaming others is also integral to um, why we've seen such an increase in normalisation. And uh, we've noticed that one thing that has matched this sort of huge rise in the popularity of cosmetic surgery is the public concern and often ridicule for those undergoing the techniques when, when it goes wrong or they go too far. And at the same time that youth is celebrated, cosmetic surgery that's really obvious um, is portrayed in a very negative light. So we see shows such as botched bodies and the representations of celebrities who look too enhanced and false. There we go. Um, So in the context of such a denigrated position in popular culture, um, empirical studies have revealed how women grapple with stigma, pathologisation, and the judgement of others when undergoing certain procedures. And this is often and magnified by the role of the professional, who are professionals who are complicit in this process. So the cosmetic patient um, and surgeon and their relationship and interaction becomes important. Both are active agents seeking to negotiate and legitimize their involvement, and both seek to navigate the stigma and judgment of others in the, in the quest for the socially valorized perfect body which leads to a violent process of negotiation about what is normal in the makeover environment. And through this process, both parties can be seen to be attempting to construct some form of proper medical treatment, um, which is sanctioned because it's healthy or corrective. Um, And they can make a distinction between good natural corrective results and bad shameful sort of going too far results. And that kind of boundary marking seeks to normalise what is or what can, in fact, be very harmful. Um, And so we see that strategy through the creation of the surgical other or the surgical junkie. Um, People taking surgery too far, like Cher or Katie Price. And they are the special agents of the abject hybrid otherness that cosmetic surgery as an emerging technology requires to make itself legitimate. So, for example, Evelyn did some research which shows how women sought to distance themselves from that other by constantly referring to particular celebrities who've gone too far. And also class narratives impact on this, with, for example, working class women seeking perhaps more obvious surgery and more noticeable surgery, and other women seeking more natural, unnoticeable surgery. So in the context of the virtual explosion of cosmetic surgery, such negotiations surrounding the good or the shameful candidate are becoming all the more important and defined as patient consumers and surgeons seek to justify their involvement. Um, And we have argued that attempting to medicalise surgery, which is carried out for purely aesthetic reasons, is damaging in this way because the willingness of the physician to provide treatments may operate as a legitimation in the minds of patients. And due to the risks and its distance from medical practice that we've mentioned, some people have argued that we should completely criminalize um, cosmetic surgery in this way, Dennis Baker being the key one. And so Baker has argued that following the English um, law decision in the case of Brown, um, the English common law only provides an exception for genuine medicine. And he argues that non-therapeutic cosmetic surgery falls outside that that, um, zone. He argues also that consent cannot and should not be used to justify this type of harmful, and as he terms it, unreasonable surgery. And he argues for the outright criminalisation of such surgery, saying that the medical profession has hidden the criminal harm in unnecessary cosmetic surgery by dressing it up as genuine medicine. It should be criminalised because it involves wrongful harm. Now, we agree with some of the concerns that Baker has has, uh, pointed out, but we certainly wouldn't agree that it should be criminalised. Rather we think that it should be separated from the sort of public policy justifications that have traditionally, and for very good reasons if we think about the origins of this type of surgery, um, but you know, in the context of the modern um, consumerist industry, we think it's time for a different um, regulatory approach. So kind of motivated by the concerns highlighted by the KEO. Review um, and the concern about uh, the marketing strategies used and the, the weak form of consent. We argue that we need to rethink the regulation um, of this type of surgery and have a much more precautionary approach to consent and, and um, make it much more difficult for vulnerable people to access surgery. And that's it.